Good evening, and welcome to our time together this evening. I would like for you to please pause with me at this time as we again speak to our Heavenly Father. Our Father, we thank you once again for this opportunity that we have to come together as your children so that we might encounter you, the triune God, through worship, that we might experience you through your word. Lord, we pray that if there's again anything that would prevent us from doing that this evening, that you will remove it from our consciousness and cause us to so focused upon you, the one who is indeed worthy of our attention, our praise, and our worship. Now, Lord, we commit ourselves totally to this endeavor. These things, Father, we ask in your Son's name, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.
Amen. Good evening. It's such a joy to have you here today. This is a time of celebration. Amen. I like the word that our pastor follow used. We're here to encounter God. If you recall, that's the word, the term we use when we show our reason for being here, the purpose statement and all of that. Worship is a means of encountering the triune God. That means there's a personal contact. And worship is to be that, an individual, personal contact with God in a corporate setting. It's a wonderful experience, really. And the Lord's Supper is a beautiful avenue, means uh, for doing that. And I believe our Savior, our Lord, our Master, you left it for us for that purpose, so that we might encounter him. And of course, as we go on, you know, with our purpose statement, Instruction, the Word of God uh, uh, that is in design for you to encounter God through His Word. It's not just to encounter a speaker giving a lecture or giving an entertainment type of a thing, but that you might encounter God through His Word. And so tonight we're here again to encounter God. So our hearts and our minds must be open and receptive to the Spirit of God. Because I believe that genuine worship is a personal a response to a personal awareness of the presence of God. And when the Spirit of God impacts my spirit in such a way with the presence of the triune God, then I respond. I respond in worship. And so this evening, let's ask the Spirit of God to prepare our hearts and minds to encounter God through our worship experience today, this evening. And I want to read the passage of Scripture that we always read when we come to this because it's his instructions to us how it is to be done. And I want to repeat again that one of the most blessed experiences we can have is when we know that we are doing what God tells us to do. Amen? Because that's what we're here for. We're to obey God. That's how we abide in him. We abide in him by obeying his commandments, according to John 15, you see. And so we want to be sure that we are in the will of God when we worship. And he's given us specific instructions as to how we are to prepare ourselves to encounter God in this experience. I'm talking about, of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So I invite you to turn to that right now. And you can follow in your version. I'm sure we all have different versions, so we can't read it together. Well, we could if we had it on the screen, but uh, I'll just read it from here for now. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. In other words, he's saying, I'm just giving you what Jesus gave me. 
That's revelation. That's how we get the mind and will of God. By receiving from the apostle what Jesus gave to them. I receive from the Lord that which I deliver to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we are here to focus on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and specifically his suffering for us. Well, actually his death for us. The fact that he was a sacrifice for us. His body, his blood given for us. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we are involved in a preaching uh, ministry when we observe the Lord's Supper according to the way that he has laid it out. We actually proclaim the word is a strong word, placarding, putting up for all to see the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's also another important significance. It's remembering his death until he comes. So it's a promise of his return. And so even that anticipation of the return of Christ should encourage us to have clean hands and pure hearts before him. Because when he comes, we do not want to be ashamed because of unconfessed sin in our life. And so he focuses immediately in instructions as to how to observe the Lord's Supper, the need for purity in our lives, for examining ourselves. And he goes on, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That means observing it in the wrong fashion. Now in the context here, you'll find that that unworthiness means that we were not really regarding other members of the Christ, as a, of the body of Christ, as we were. Uh, these individuals who were only taking care of themselves. That's why the solution to this, he says at the end of the chapter, is to therefore wait for the others to come so we could observe the Lord's, we could eat of the feast together and share with one another and so on. But it has to do with regarding not only the body of Jesus Christ being given for us as a complete sacrifice, but also acknowledging the fact that every member of the body of Christ is all equal before him. We stand on the same ground. So a man must examine himself, and in so doing is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Now many read these words and they look at it from a negative perspective, but these are some of the most glorious words we can use concerning our relationship with God. This gives us a prescription as to how we can have the assurance that God will receive our worship. 
And he is telling us these things so we could prepare our hearts and our minds in such a way that when we do remember him and we participate, we partake of these emblems, we will encounter God. He will receive our worship. He will be honored and glorified. That's why we underline this truth as well. This is the Lord's table. It's for those who have placed personal faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we partake of these emblems, we are preaching, we are proclaiming that we have accepted Christ as our Savior and we are now participating in the effects of his death and his resurrection for us. And so if you here right now and if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior we encourage you to do that right now because this this kind of examination here self-examination is not to prevent you or me from participating it is to enable us to do so with a sense that God will receive our worship and all you have to do of course is acknowledge that you are a sinner the wages Sin, separation from God. But Jesus Christ, God's divine son, sinless, spotless, came, offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for us. He took our penalty upon himself. He received what was due to us. You acknowledge that he died as your substitute, and you receive him, his work, as the only basis for your salvation. Because Jesus... Death was acknowledged by the Father as being the uh, final payment for our sin by God raising him from the dead. And you place your faith in him and his work. You become a child of God. That qualifies you to remember him in this fashion. Now, if you are an unbeliever, if you do not place faith in Christ, we say lovingly, and you don't want to accept him now and you trust that is not so, but if that is so in your life, we ask you just to let the elements pass by. Now, for those of us who are believers, of course, this is a joyful experience for us. This is not a gloomy time. We are not celebrating or remembering the dying of our Lord Jesus Christ or the ongoing suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are remembering a finished work. That is what we are remembering, a finished work. And so we should do so with joy happiness as we anticipate his soon return so beloved this is a glorious experience for us let's enter into it with that attitude that we are here at the command of jesus christ we are doing what he told us to do that should make you feel good but now let's go through the whole process so i'm going to ask you right now to bow your heads please take a few moments of quiet reflection and meditation ask the spirit of god to work in your heart. And if there needs to be any confession, um, a beginning with anything between brothers and sisters, you need to confess that, put it under the blood, taking his promise that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do that. But also, if you know that you've done things that have caused you to be separated from him, there's no fellowship with him, Perhaps it's only things that you and he knows, know about. You need to confess those as well. And oh God is there willing. He's such a loving God. He is just there waiting for us to do that so he can embrace us.
in his arms of love and fellowship again. I encourage you to do that right now. sin was made an atoning sacrifice for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He is our righteousness. Praise him for that right now. Just ask the Spirit of God now to help you as we go along in this worship time to truly encounter God presence in our midst so that we might respond to him in genuine worship those who are serving please come forward now and as they do I ask you to continue to worship him in spirit and in truth. We're going to focus on the cross of our Savior and the wonderful love that he displayed there for us.
the men return to the front. Let's continue with the attitude of thanksgiving for the love and the cross of our Savior. because of your great love and your great sacrifice you came to seek and to save the lost that was me tonight I want to thank you from the depths of my heart that you came to seek me and to save me I appreciate you, Jesus, for all that you've done on my behalf.
I worship you because of who you are. The cross was a finished work. And as we partake tonight of this bread, the emblem of his body, we do this in remembrance of him with thanksgiving. Let's partake of the bread. Heavenly Father, we are forever grateful for the ultimate sacrifice, the shedding of your son's blood. We give you thanks for this cup and for what it represents. We're thankful for your love. We thank you for your goodness. We're thankful for your grace. There's nothing we can do to deserve this or to earn this. We will forever be grateful. Give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. We are reminded from scriptures that without the shedding of blood, that there is no remission of sin. And as we hold this cup symbolic of the blood, the very precious blood of Jesus Christ, we are indeed grateful for the blood. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the expression of your love for us through him shedding his precious blood for us. We do remember him. We remember the shedding of his blood. Indeed, we will be forever grateful. Forever grateful. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Let us partake of the cup in remembrance of him together. I invite you as we continue with our worship, having encountered him through our worship around the table, I ask you to pause with me now as we continue with our worship through our tithes and our offering. And so I ask you to bow with me. Once again, Father, we bow before you. You are indeed sovereign, majestic, almighty. We thank you for this privilege we have just experienced as we remember the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And Lord, as we continue to, to worship through our tithes and our offering, we are again grateful because of you we are able to participate in this way. So as we do so, Lord, we do so with joy. We pray that as we do so, that what we do, as we do it with clean hands and pure hearts, that it will be pleasing to you. Indeed, Father, you are worthy to be worshipped. And so, again, we ask your blessing on the gifts that will be offered. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Amen. Thank you. I think we should be thankful for our musicians. Amen. And uh, let's do that. And uh, I was so blessed with the choir this morning. Wasn't that a great time? And to see um, a good group did this morning. And the joy that was expressed in their singing, I thought it was wonderful. Amen? Amen. All right, as usual, we'd like to begin uh, this uh, part of the service, very informal, uh, to talk about My cell phone? Bonnie, what do you, why do you think they pick on me? It's off. <laughs> My cell phone is off, man. All right. Oh, boy. That's what you... Hey, now, don't forget to give me that back. All right. Um, are we streaming? Okay. All of you Calvary Bible people who are looking at us on streaming, you should be here. <laughs> Don't use this as an excuse to stay home. <laughs> All right. Let's begin uh, as usual. Do you have any questions or comments concerning the message this morning? Oh, yeah, please, let's use the mic if we can. Would you mind running it up and down if we have any questions or comments concerning the message? Oh, here's one right here. You could, you could get this one. You're close enough, and then hold on it to run it around. Uh, my, my question is, I think I might have missed the one, what you had mentioned with when Jesus mentioned you could only divorce if there is a case of adultery. Ah, uh, yeah, we dealt with that. Okay, I think I had missed that evening. Well, you service. missed an important I, one. I know, and my quick question. My uh, quick that's question. a big one because our yeah. conclusion, <laughs> it wasn't adultery as we understand adultery today. Oh. All right, it's point A. You better get the tape on that one because oh. that's, a, that's a deep one. You, we don't have time to go through all of that. Our, okay. position, our position on uh, that particular thing is that he is there talking about one of two things. One... Incest, because that's a technical term for incest in the New Testament. Or perhaps uh, the period of betrothal in the Jewish custom, uh, when there was a betrothal period, and uh, if anyone was unfaithful, it was regarded as adultery, because even though they were not married as we understand it today, their betrothal uh, period was recognized as their husband and wife. That's why you'll see that. Uh, Mary and Joseph were called husband and wife even though they were not married before the birth of Jesus. Okay? So get the marriage. tape. Okay. So I guess the answer to this question then, if, uh, if there's a husband and wife marriage now and one of them sees or knows of the other committing adultery, that wouldn't be a case for divorce. They not my understanding of Scripture, no. I understand in Scripture there is no biblical basis for a Christian to divorce another person, another Christian. In fact, even an unsaved mate. Okay. Good evening. Just a bit of clarity, Pastor Lee. Sorry. <laughs> On verse 15. Yeah. Okay. It says, For if the unbelieving 
um, one leaves, let him leave. The brother in the, um, or the sister is not under bondage. Um, I just wanted to be clear on this um, verse. Is it saying that if the um, unbelieving spouse wants to leave, the Christian um, should not stop him or has... Right. Okay, don't, don't word, have to stop. Go ahead. Okay, the Christian don't have, to, don't have no um, obligation to tell him he'll stay or... But just well, don't I wouldn't do- say, you know, you shouldn't try to prevent it. But we're saying that if the unbeliever takes that position that because of the lifestyle of the Christian he wants to leave, then he should not do anything to try to stop it. By legally especially, you should just let the person go. So, okay, However, then- let me say, that doesn't mean you don't try for reconciliation because it goes on to say, even if that happens, you still have to, you have two options. One, you uh, remain unmarried or what? Reconciliation. So you, that's always must be uh, left open. The attitude of the Christian then, always right. have the attitude of um, reconciliation, right? Exactly. But in the event that the unbeliever has, don't want anything to do with the Christian spouse at all, they just want to leave and cut ties and call it that. Then he goes or she then goes. Then the believer then, is the believer free to marry or to remain? No, no, no. no. So they remain? remain. There's only two options for a Christian if a divorce occurs. One, you stay unmarried until there's reconciliation. If there's no reconciliation, you wait till he or she dies. Okay, thank you. <laughs> That's it. Okay, Pastor same verse 15. Um, we're saying that we are not under bondage or obligation. And you, you pointed out this morning that the marriage is not bondage or enslavement. Right. What does that bondage refer to? Well, like I say, the, 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 the connotation, the word there is where the, uns, the saved person might feel a responsibility or have a, a guilty conscience for causing the break. And uh, that's, the, that's the tenor of it. The, uh, in other words, if take the position that... Um, um, Jennifer, Jennifer, it's, what it come? It was coming, you know. Take a position of, of Jennifer stated about the the, the unsaved mate is adamant Gee, they, they they want to leave. Well, what it's saying is the Christian mate should not feel guilty about that. They should not be to uh, uh, use the word they're bound of the guilty conscience that they were the reason for it. Because the word there has the idea of, of of being subject to a pressure, as it were. And um, so he's simply saying that the Christian should not feel in any way uh, guilty that the marriage is broken up if the person, the unsaved person, is leaving because of the fact that they are Christians. The, you understand what I'm saying? That is the idea. And as I say, that is borne out by the whole tenor of the Scripture because... At least four times the command is given that a Christian is not to initiate the divorce and they should remain unmarried or be reconciled. That's all through the scripture. And all of a sudden I have one thing to say, hey, forget all of that. It doesn't make sense. You see, it doesn't make sense. Okay. Should a believer try to reconcile with an unbelieving spouse? Oh, yes. Definitely. That's what the text says. Either be reconciled or remain unmarried. Reconciliation is always 
the, the first option. Forgiveness, of course, comes in. Reconciliation is always, always, always the first option. You see, Christians are called to live different. You see, that's the point. We're called to be different. Uh, and that's what Paul is advocating here in this passage. Any other questions or comments? None? Good. All right. We want to finish up a study of um, tonight, if we can, of the book of Hosea. Now, by the way, as we go on, if you still have a question, so young man, you can still hold that one. If you have any questions, even as we go along, please feel free to ask it, because we want this to be an interactive period, a time of learning, uh, from uh, me learning from you and perhaps you learning from me. Now and then I say something that th- might teach you something, all right? So if you'd like to ask a question, please feel free to do that. Now, we've come to the point, and I don't want to take all the time to review again, otherwise we'd never finish. Uh, but um, Hosea is now coming to the point that we're after explaining that his relationship to his wife and the naming of the children are representative of God's dealing with Israel. He's not sort of coming to the point in the book now where he's applying it to Israel. All right? We're down, I think, to chapter 3, and we want to run through it quite rapidly. If you remember the history of Israel, Israel, then Judah, was taken into captivity. When the final return took place in the days of Zerubbabel and Ezra, the Jews never again went aside to worship the false gods of the Canaanites. Because, you know, God is using the relationship between Gomer and Hosea as a picture of what happens when a spouse is unfaithful to the other spouse. And God is saying that is what you are doing to me when you go to worship other gods. You are committing spiritual adultery. And as a result of that, there was discipline, the same way that Gomo went through all kinds of problems in her life, even to the point of being sold as a slave. That was discipline for disobedience. But God was still after her, sent Gomer after her, to the point where even he was paying to upkeep Gomer when she was living with somebody else. You see, that was just a way of God demonstrating his love. In spite of disobedience, God's love is still there. But that doesn't mean that the disobedient spouse will not experience discipline. And that is what is happening here. Now, if you go to chapter 3 in verse, verses 4 and 5, he says, The sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar and without apart or household idols. Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord, their God, and David, their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So there is here a prophetic picture of Israel coming back to God in the last days. So in verse 5, the promise is that the people will return to David, their king. Now, this is very significant because remember now, this has been addressed to what is called the northern ten tribes who had rejected David, the kingship of David. And so this is a prophecy that will be, prophecy that will be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the son of David. 
So this is quite a picture that is given to us. He's looking ahead to the coming of the son of David, Jesus, to establish the kingdom, at which time the people of God will be reunited again and restored. But this pattern continues uh, in the following chapters in Hosea concerning Israel going astray, God going after. Israel going astray, God going after. Let's take a look. Hosea chapter 6 verse 4, and I hope you have your Bibles. Please turn to it, so at least you'll know where to see it, find it next time. Hosea chapter 6, all right? God's bride, Israel, kept going back to the sins. Verse 4, Hosea. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? That's another name for Israel, of course. What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Isn't that a tremendous picture? Your loyalty is like a morning. It just it doesn't last long at all. It just, it's gone. Now, he's saying that to Israel who he regards as his bride. Your faithfulness just doesn't last. It isn't permanent. But yet, God never stopped loving them. Look at verse 11. Uh, well, look, uh, verse 1 of chapter 11. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? See, he's pouring out his heart. You're doing all of these things. You continually abandon me. You completely reject me. You completely deny me. You always are disobeying me. You're unfaithful. But yet, I cannot give you up. This is why, by the way, there's a big argument theologically as to whether or not God really divorced Israel or he just threatened to do it and act as though he did. Now, I take the position that he never did. It was only a threat. He only treated her as such, but he never really did it. And this seems to indicate, how can I give you up? I love you in spite of all of your problems, of every, all the trouble you're causing me. I still love you. God does the same thing with us. If you will be honest to yourself, you know you've been unfaithful to God. And you know you continue to be unfaithful. But yet, he doesn't give up on you. Isn't that right? He still comes after you, saying, I love you, I love you. By the way, he wants us to do the same thing. Jesus said we should love one another how? Even as I have loved you. That's why really there should never be any permanent breakups or, uh, uh, between believers. When the divisions believers, somebody is not loving somebody. It's clear it's, it's just as it's, it's simple as that. We're just not loving one another as Christ loved us. We will always be looking for reconciliation, no matter what. That's living differently than the unsaved. Because God never stopped loving Israel, he never stopped pleading with them either. Chapter 14 of Hosea, look at that verse. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. He keeps pleading to them. He keeps reaching out to them. Come back, come back, come back, come back. He does the same thing for us. And he does it in different ways. Sometimes he does it 
through the word of God. When we're disobedient, he speaks to us through his word. Sometimes he does it through situations. He brings experiences into our lives that are very difficult. He's calling out to us to come back to him. He never stopped loving them, and therefore he never stops pleading for them to come back. Now, let's look at God's indictment of Israel now based on how he has taught us the lesson of his love for an unfaithful bride through Hosea's relationship to his unfaithful wife, Goma. The charge against Israel, against the nation, in chapter 4, verse 1, and then I'll give you others as well. Against you who live in the land, there is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. You're living as though God doesn't exist. You might believe there's a God, but you're still living with an atheistic attitude. You say there's a God, but you live as though there's no God. I call that Christian atheism. Because many Christians live like that. They acknowledge that there's a God, but they live as though there's no God. That's what's happening here. Verse 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Now I know that you're familiar with this passage. Now it is important to note here. What is it that the people have a lack of knowledge of? Because this verse is quoted all the time. We often take this verse out of context, but the remainder of the verse explains what it is that they have no knowledge of. He says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you being my priest. He's talking to the leaders. Since you have forgotten the law, your God, I also will forget your children. What is it that they have no knowledge of? The law of their God, the word of God. It's the word of God, the law of your Lord, that the people lack knowledge of. That lack brings spiritual and temporal destruction to the people. And so it has to do with not knowing the word of God. Many people do apply this differently. You're not doing good because you don't have enough knowledge of the business world. You're not doing well because you don't have no knowledge of people's personality, all that kind of a thing. But in context, it has to do with a lack of knowledge of the word of God. And I have no doubt that's why a lot of people, a lot of even Christians, are not experienced God's fullness in their lives because they have no knowledge of the word of God. There's also a misinterpretation, as I mentioned earlier, with the passage in Proverbs concerning where there's no vision, the people perish. Many people use that as though there's no big idea, there's no concept, there's no plan for the future. The people will perish. It's not talking about that. The word for vision there is revelation from God. And if you read the whole passage, you get this teaching, where there is no revelation from God, the people go astray because they do their own thing. That's what he's talking about. It's the knowledge of the word of God that is essential for us to have a right relationship with God and to live the way he wants us to live. And so I again, and I, I know this might sound like a, a broken record, but this is a good broken record message to, to listen to. You've got to learn to study the word of God. You need to have a knowledge of the word of God. But let's go on. Continuing with God's indictment of Israel. 
He speaks to the leaders now. In chapter 4 verses 7 through 8. The priests. The more the priests increase, the more they sinned against me. Isn't that amazing? Try to apply that today in Nassau. With preachers and apostles and prophets. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. They exchange their glory for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. He is talking about the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the church. And he's saying that they, the leaders, are responsible for a lot of the sins that are going on. This is the message throughout the Old Testament. The priests and the prophets who have left obedience to the word of God, gone their own way, given their own message. In fact, when you read the condemnation of Sodom and Gomorrah, we like to focus all the time on the sin of sodomy and all of that, and that's prominent. But one of the major reasons for the destruction is because of the sins of the priests. They were living the fat of the land. They were enjoying the fruit of the sins of the people themselves. Read it. Study it. And it's for that reason. One of the reasons why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And so here's the sentence in chapter 5 verse 14. I will be like a lion to Ephraim. Like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. This is a vivid picture here. If you know how lions feed. I mean they attack. They prey. They grab a hold of them. And they just don't stay there. They drag him the way to go to a safe place as his word to feast on. That's what God says he will do in judgment with his people. I will judge you is what he's saying because of the sin. He's trying to demonstrate that there's always discipline for disobedience to God. The same way Gomer was disciplined because of her unfaithfulness. The same thing is true of us today. When we disobey God, even though he loves us, and even though he will forgive us when we come and we repent and we confess, we still will be disciplined. That's built in to the justice of God. No one will rescue them. The appeal is rejected. The God's appeal to them is rejected. He said, let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. Surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. So there's some who's crying, okay, let's turn back to God. Let's repent. Let's go back to God. Let's be blessed again. That's the call. But now that call is rejected. Verse 6. Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. They reject, it's rejected because of Israel's true condition. They just could not respond to that kind of an appeal. And so God warns them of judgment again. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord. Because the people have broken my covenant. And rebelled against the law. Chapter 9 verse 7. 
The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. Because your sins are so many and your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool, the inspired man, a maniac. Did you get that message? He says, your sins have taken you to the point now and your hostility against the things of God is that when the true man of God is speaking, you think he's crazy. That's true today. You get people who preach the word for what God says. He says, you're crazy, man. You can't live like that today. I'm talking on the radio in the morning concerning the Noahic Covenant about capital punishment and birth control. Yeah, birth control. I call it population control. You see? When you state what the scripture teaches, people say, man, you fool, today? You can't live like that. Like the young lady in the Tribune the other day. The idea of a wife being submissive to the husband, that's ancient stuff, man. That's not for the day. That's for them people, you know, those people that didn't have too much up there. You see, that's not for us in our advanced society. They look at us as maniacs, as fools. And you even have Christians like that when they hear the word of God. Uh-uh. Because they don't know the word of God. They lack knowledge of the word of God and therefore they perish. That does not mean necessarily they're going to hell, mind you. You're talking about your way of life and the blessings in temporal life as well. That's the warning of approaching judgment. Now remember we're just doing a survey of this book, so we're going quite rapidly here. Now God then goes on to talk about their punishment in chapters 8 through 10. First, Assyrian captivity is prophesied. They will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim will return Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. This talks about the captivity. He mentions it again in chapter 10 verse 13. But you have planted wickedness. You have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception. Because you are dependent on your own strength and on your many warriors. Your own strength and people around you not depending on me. Depending on your own wisdom, your own wealth, your own wisdom, uh, your own learning, your own position, and all of that. God says, you'll be judged because you've left me out. But God still repeats his love again. In chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. If you remember, this is the words that the... um, um, the gospel writers use in reference to Jesus Christ. Out of Egypt I have called my son. You remember when they took Jesus down as a boy into Egypt to escape Pharaoh? And then God called him out. And God took this verse here and applies it to Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament it's applied to Israel, the servant. In the New Testament it is applied to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. Now when he said did not realize, they did not appreciate, did not show thanks, did not give me, acknowledge the fact that it was me, it was me, God, who did it. Verse 5, chapter 11. Will they not return to Egypt? 
And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Because they refuse to repent? They will be in captivity again. God's love is mentioned again despite the rebellion in verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma, Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. God again is expressing his deep love for his people, his bride. Israel's rebellion and God's chastisement is mentioned in verse 12 of chapter 11. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. The house of Israel has surrounded me with deceit. He's speaking about hypocrisy amongst his people. They claim things with their lips, but their hearts are far away from him. You read the prophets, you hear, where they come into the temple to worship. They bring all of the sacrifice and the dancing and the singing and the choirs and all of that. But God says, get out of here. Somebody close the door. You're going through the motions. But your heart is deceitful. You see, that's why we try to give an opportunity to our people every time we meet. When we come to worship God, we must come with clean hands and a pure heart. There must be confession of sin. We must acknowledge that. God does not like hypocrisy. He doesn't. And we could come with all the sincerity we want, but if there's sin in our hearts, if we're not living right with our God and living right with our people, God will not receive our worship. In fact, you say, please don't come to church anymore. Isn't that something? Please don't come. He goes on. Chapter 12, verse 2. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again all the days of your appointed feasts. God will continue to chastise for continued disobedience. But there will be restoration. Chapter 14. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. That's praise. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. They're trying to make a commitment. Never again will we worship false idols, false gods. Never again will we abandon our God. Israel is saying we're going back to my bridegroom. I'm going back to my husband. And that will happen in the coming day. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. Beautiful words. For my anger has turned away from... Aren't they beautiful words? Why is it... How is it possible that God's anger could be turned away from our sin? Do you know how? Do you know why? Because of Jesus' death. Because of what we celebrated tonight. The sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, his anger has turned away from us. Why? Because it was turned upon Jesus Christ. 
He took God's anger for us. And if that shouldn't cause us to worship God and to live holy lives, I don't know what can. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I am like a green pine tree. Your fruitfulness comes from me, he says. Hosea 49, I like these words. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. The things that we've learned from the book of Hosea. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. Know the word of God. Because where there is no knowledge, the people perish. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the righteous will walk in them. The transgressors will stumble in them. That's the lesson of the book of Hebrew. Of, of the book of uh, Hosea. Now, as we close, just quickly, there's some derived principles concerning marriage in this and relationships. First, the husband is to love his wife sacrificially. We are never to give up on our wives if they are unfaithful. Never. Secondly, faithfulness to one's spouse is a basic element of a marriage. Faithfulness. That's more important than anything else. Faithfulness. And you know... And we could deal with this in later messages on the family. Sometimes it's just another woman. It could be pornography on your computer. That's unfaithfulness. It could be a lot of other things. Faithfulness to our wife is important. Thirdly, forgiveness is a basic element of marriage. Forgiveness before anything else. Before divorce, before separation, forgiveness. Divorce is not a necessary response to unfaithfulness. Forgiveness is. That's the Christ-like response. Even in the case of repeated unfaithfulness, forgiveness is always the first option for the believer. But we must remember this also from this book. Consequences always follow disobedience and unfaithfulness. Even after forgiveness, consequences follow. Gomer found that out. Israel found that out. We experience it in our own lives today. That's why our husband, the lover of our souls, calls out to us to be faithful to him. He loves us so much, he gave himself for us. Shouldn't return that by loving him. And giving our life totally to him. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your great love towards us. The love that motivated you to give your son to die for us on Calvary's cross. May our response to that love be total love ourselves. Giving ourselves unreservedly. Help us, our Father, to be faithful to you, to your son. Help us to study the word of God so that we might have the knowledge that is necessary to live a life in relationship with you that you desire. Help us to be pure as Christians. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you. The Lord bless you.